At the age of 17, she was energetic, athletic, a teenager full of promise and hope. One afternoon after her high school graduation, while swimming in the Chesapeake Bay with her sister, Johnny took a headlong dive from a wooden raft into very shallow water. And that moment would change the rest of her life. She became a quadriplegic, destined to spend the remainder of her days in a wheelchair without any feeling in her hands and legs. And as she recounts this story, she notes in particular that the day that the doctors told her the scope of her condition and the permanency of her injuries was the day that the battles with depression began. Johnny was certain that the best thing in her life would be that she would be healed. And for her, that was always physical. And she wrestled with the Lord in the days and weeks and months and even years to come. And she recalls a moment of clarity for her that changed her perspective. She was reading Mark chapter 1 where Jesus had spent all day healing various infirmities and the next day he went to a solitary place to pray. And others who were sick and who had uh, ailments that needed healing came to find Jesus and they couldn't find him. And she wrestled with Jesus' goodness. How is it that he would go away when others were coming to be healed? Her conclusion, even reading on, that Jesus would then leave and go into another town preaching the good news. Her conclusion was that it wasn't that Jesus was unconcerned with her physical need, but that Jesus was modeling a priority for the need of the soul, a need which was far deeper and more profound. And in an interview some 50 years later, Johnny Erickson Tata looks back and she says, the joy that he has given me, that he has given me, having experienced a greater degree, I believe, of grace and faith and strength and courage and perseverance, really does far outweigh any joy or grace or strength or courage I could have ever experienced standing on two good feet. She found an unexpected blessing in a most unexpected place. I wonder if you are familiar with such blessings. An unexpected blessing in what you perhaps thought would be a place where blessings would never flow. Our passage this morning introduces us to two such blessings. And those blessings will take place in a most unexpected of places while camping in the wilderness near the Mount of God. And each of the blessings that we see in Exodus chapter 18 is tied to Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And each of the blessings has direct application to each of us this morning. And so it's just helpful for us as we turn to Exodus chapter 18 to know that Exodus chapter 18 really serves as a hinge upon which the book of Exodus turns. 
Some people divide Exodus into two sections, with the hinge being chapter 18. Others would divide it into three sections, with the first hinge being Exodus 18. The first half of the book, God bringing his people out of Egypt, leading us to the second half of the book, God giving his law so that the people would know how to live. And for those that divide it into three sections, it would be God bringing his people out of Egypt, God giving his people the law, and then specific instructions on how God was to dwell with his people in and through the instructions with the tabernacle. And so thinking about God being a God who is gracious to save, leading then this hinge chapter to God being a God who is faithful to speak. God saves 1 through 18, God speaks 19 through 40. And in the middle, a most peculiar transition takes place. An unlikely blessing will flow from a conversation with a father-in-law. And if your mind went, yep, that's right. There is no blessing to be found with my father-in-law. That is not the point I was trying to make. But just think about what we've witnessed. We've witnessed the supernatural highlight reel. We've, we've witnessed the burning bush, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the miraculous deliverance, water and food miraculously provided. We witnessed last week the defeat of the Amalekites. And then chapter 18, the hinge chapter, perhaps we're, we're waiting for the crescendo moment. And the hinge takes place in an ordinary, run-of-the-mill conversation between a son-in-law and father-in-law. And God will choose to graciously unleash, unleash his blessing in and through this chapter. And so as we submit ourselves to these truths this morning, I pray that we would experience a similar waterfall of God's blessing. That we would come to rightly know where his blessings are found. That we would rightly experience and enjoy him because of it. And so I want to pray for that kind of response before we jump in. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you with great need this morning. Lord, would you heighten our awareness to be able to, to find the ways in which your unmerited favor is poured out on your people, and we would long to be the recipients of such blessing. Remind some of us this morning that that type of blessing can be found even if we walked in today not knowing it. And remind others this morning that that blessing has been found. And may we find ourselves shedding off wrong views of blessing and that we would think rightly about what you have given us and then how we ought to rightly respond. Help us become better worshipers of you, we pray. Use this sermon to that end. May what is 
spoken today, God, would you use it in far greater ways than any man ever could? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. We're going to trace the two blessings that are found in two stories. And so the sermon will have two points. The first point, which I believe is what this chapter and really what captures the hinge of the whole book is going to dominate the sermon. And I say that just as a warning. In case you're thinking, I thought there were two points and we're still in point one. Point two is, is smaller. And then we want to just trace the blessings, thinking about these two stories, and then thinking about how those blessings inform our lives today, whether you find yourself as a follower of Jesus or not. This hinge chapter will invite us to experience the blessing that is available to us most profoundly in and through the finished work of Jesus the Christ. And I've already mentioned blessings multiple times and so I just want to make sure we have a correct understanding. Blessing, another, another way of defining blessing or a way of defining blessing is blessing is God's favor. An extending of his grace that would move us to experience and know and enjoy God. God's favor, this extending of his grace that would move us to experience and to know and to enjoy God. And so if I could say it another way, it is very possible for you to be blessed this morning and have, and have very little earthly possessions. And so let's unpack these two blessings. First, God's blessing of salvation to the nations. God's blessing of salvation to the nations. We see this in verses 1 through 12, what Laura read for us already. And so the thrilling narrative of the last few chapters downshifts here in Exodus chapter 18 into a much slower, much more ordinary interaction. And right away, verse 1, now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, right away we're introduced to Jethro. We learn that he's a, a priest of Midian and he's Moses' father-in-law. And if we were to think about this, we were first introduced to Jethro in Exodus chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. He was called by a different name in Exodus 2, Ruel. You'll remember the story. Jethro, Ruel, same person, had seven daughters. And they were at the, at the well one day. The well, in fact, where Moses, after he had killed the Egyptian, Pharaoh seeking to kill him. Moses flees, and where does he go? He goes to the land of Midian, and he finds himself at this well. And on this day, these seven daughters of Jethro show up. And there are some shepherds there that begin to give them grief, and Moses stands up and defends these daughters. Fast forward a little bit. Moses then marries one of the daughters, Zipporah, See this in Exodus 2.21. And he stays there in Midian, finding favor with his father-in-law, tending to Jethro's flock. He stays there for 40 years. And so we read the connection that Jethro has to Moses as his father-in-law. We also are told that Jethro is a priest of Midian. 
The rest of the Old Testament will make clear that Midianites and God people uh, didn't have the best of relationships. And so it's helpful for us to know that coming into this encounter, Moses' father-in-law was not a God-fearing man. He did not fear the one true living God. He was a secular priest among a people who did not believe in that God. But word had traveled fast and far about what the Lord had done. About what the Lord had done specifically in and through the exodus of God's people. And we just hear, it, even in hearing that, that word has traveled. It reminds us multiple times of what God said. There is a reason in which I have allowed you to be enslaved and why I will deliver you in such a miraculous way. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. And so even as we hit Exodus chapter 18, this is just evidence that indeed what the Lord intended in and through the bondage of his people and the miraculous delivery of his people is indeed what has happened. Throughout this, the, the whole chapter, when Jethro's described, he's described as the priest of Midian once, and he's described as the father-in-law of Moses 13 times. The familial aspect of this relationship is what carries the weight. And at some point in verse 2, or we learn in verse 2 that at some point Moses has sent Zipporah and his two sons back to Midian for some time with the in-laws. We're not given any information on when he sent his wife and sons away, but he has. We don't know why he sent them away. But what Moses does go out of his way to explain in this narrative is the names of his son. Uh, the names of his sons. And, and, and the names of his sons really does in some way serve as just an autobiography of his life. In two short phrases. We're told that his first son was Gershom. Which indicated that he had been a sojourner in a foreign land. Again, just remember Moses' story. Moses was a sojourner. He was raised in Pharaoh's court. He was a sojourner. He, was, he fled Egypt, landing in Midian for 40 years. He returns and he wanders in the wilderness. Gershom is an appropriate name for much of the story of Moses' life. But throughout it all, God was his help. Eliezer. Eliezer was an appropriate confession. The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Friends, you don't have to name your kids these names in order to have this story. Having this story is available to you and I by trusting the same God through whom one would come and would do a far greater deliverance than Moses and who indeed would be far more glorious than Moses.
And the New Testament doesn't leave us in suspense as to who that greater one is. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. For he, who is he? Look up to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus. For Jesus, the Son of God, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And so, friends, you can have the story. I just feel like I've not yet found my home on this earth. And yet, through it all, God has been my deliverer. If you're a Christian this morning, that is your story. And so what we find in this first section, Exodus chapter 18, Jethro accompanies his daughter and his grandsons as they come back to reunite with Moses. Jethro even sends word before he gets there that they are coming. What does Moses do? Moses doesn't kind of get the place in order. No, he goes out to meet his family in a manner that would capture both the honor that one was to give a family member, as well as just a deference. The text says they embrace, they begin to exchange how have you beens, and they step into the tent. And it's in the tent that we read that Moses launches directly into the incredible story of deliverance. Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian for Israel's sakes, uh, sake. All the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. He tells Jethro everything. He doesn't hold back any details. He tells them all that the Lord had done. And all that he had done for their sake all that he had done for their sake because he loved his people. He made sure to hit every high point, every supernatural punch that landed by their warrior God, Yahweh, as he got glory over the Egyptians and saved his people in the process. But Moses doesn't stop there. He explains not just all that God had done, speaking of the victories, he goes into all of the hardship that they've experienced along the way. The bumps, the bruises, the winding roads, the constant complaining of the people. He explained both the incredible deliverance and the real world reality of this journey of following God out of slavery. And yet through it all, he emphasized how the Lord had been faithful. That at every turn, this was a story of the rescue of God. I wonder what it must have been like in the tent on that day. This priest of false gods hearing about the mighty acts of the one true living God. Of all people, of all people, this was a man who was most entrenched in his beliefs. Surely this is just Moses saying, hey, father-in-law, I just want you to know this is what has been happening. And that's why verse 9 is most unexpected. 
Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, verse 10, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Verse 12, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrificed for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. This was most unexpected. How in the world would this kind of blessing find its way to a priest among a people who worshipped false gods? What do we find Jethro doing as he hears this information? He doesn't just merely give intellectual assent and say, yep, I think that's a good story. Moses sounds like it's good for you. Let me tell you how we do it in Midian. Let me tell you about how our little G gods do it. No, Jethro rejoices. He confesses. And he sacrifices all indications that on this day, this pagan priest has come to trust in the one true living God. And again, he doesn't just sign off to say, okay, yep, I think that sounds good. No, the truths that he has just heard, he's come to believe. How do we know that he's believed them? Because those truths move and engage his heart to rejoice. The word here is, that's used conveys an overwhelming sense of joy. It wasn't just that in, on this day, in this tent, Jethro gives a little smile. No, he's exceedingly glad. As if a guy who has been going to cisterns that can't hold living water finally comes to the one who can and who does. Friends, that continues to be a picture of true Christianity. Being a Christian is not about holding to cold beliefs that never warm your heart. James reminds us, James 2.19, that that kind of religion, that's the religion of the devil. Like even the demons believe. Some of the greatest theologians throughout the Gospels are the demons. And yet there's an unwillingness to allow the heart to rejoice. To allow the knee to bend in submission. With all that knowledge demons don't worship. And so it is possible to know a lifetime worth of truths about God all the while never having a heart warmed by God and a heart warmed for God. And so I would just say at this point, parents and members of this church who have covenanted together to ensure that big truths reach little hearts it's not just about dispensing the information. We have to be faithful to do that. It's about praying down heaven 
to do something for our children that we can't do. I wonder if we could just look into the corporate, the collective individual prayers this past week. I wonder, are we assaulting the throne room of heaven with those kinds of prayers? God, we don't want, we don't want to have puffed up minds and shriveled hearts. Now we want the doctrine that we believe. Friends, doctrine is vitally important. You can't worship rightly if you don't know rightly. But right thinking always leads to warm affections and right living. Jethro says on this day, not only do I believe that story about your God, look at what he says in verse 11. I believe that your God is greater than all the gods. Jethro is convinced based on the stories that he has heard that there's not a God who can rival that God. And, and his quickened heart and his right confession culminates in Jethro then making sacrifices to God and sharing a meal with the leaders of God's people. Sacrifices were just seen to be a part of how God, God's people related to God. I, I just think about probably one of the more famous ones in the book of Genesis. Abraham, take your son, Isaac, up the mountain. Present him as a sacrifice. Like lay everything that's costly and say, Lord, it's yours. And Jethro seems to be doing that. He embraces all of it. He seems to be the first convert after the Exodus. And none of us saw it coming. An unbelieving Midian priest hearing the story of God's power, God's grace, God re God's redemption, and then confessing God's supremacy and, and embracing his need for that kind of God to do something for him that he could not do on his own. And it all came about because of the intentionality of a son-in-law. Retelling, recounting, and reviewing the story of God's saving grace. Christian brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage us. Like we too are to tell the story of God's rescue. We're to tell this to those who don't trust, to those that don't follow our God. And perhaps you're thinking, yeah, you don't understand. The people in my family, the people in my circles, yeah, they are so hard. No, 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 maybe you don't understand. The Bible is full of people like this. A man who is very entrenched in beliefs, leading him to be a priest, making sacrifices on behalf of the people to a false god. And it's not just here. Just keep flipping the scriptures. And what do you find? You find kings bowing their knee in submission, realizing that in, in all of the power that they've been given, they are still not the most powerful one. And you say, yeah, Justin, but you don't understand, man. I've got some really antagonistic. I mean, just look at the conversion of Paul. He was a terrorist. You say, Justin, you don't understand. I just think about you. <laughs> Like the Lord saved the likes of you. 
either in all of your antagonism or in all of your deceived, I've just been going and being a pretty good person my whole life. He broke through all of that. This room is full of those who people could have said, yeah, surely they are too far gone. And so Christian brothers and sisters, let's speak. Let's speak of the condition of humanity apart from God. Let's speak of our bondage to sin and to death. And let's speak of the miraculous means by which this God has addressed our bondage. Let's speak of the fact that there is a freedom that's now available That we can be free from the bondage of sin. We can be free from eternal bondage of death. We can be free from the need of having God's wrath poured out upon us. And that we can secure God's favor. Let's speak of how Jesus not only lived that kind of life. The life that earned not God's wrath, but his favor. Let's speak of how Jesus died the death of one who was still in their sin, absorbing the due payment of God's wrath. Christian brothers and sisters, let's tell others that the life God requires that we can't live, Jesus lived. Christian brothers and sisters, let's tell others that the death God demands because of sin that all of us will face, Jesus faced. And if there's a turning from all other gods, namely the God of ourselves, and we trust in Jesus alone, then we can have that life. And we can avoid that death because Jesus serves as the substitute for all who would repent and believe. And if you're speaking that story and people say it sounds too good to be true, say you've not even heard the craziest part. To ensure that it was all true, three days later, he rose bodily from the dead. And if you will believe this, then in the same way that this Savior never dies, so too will his people live forever. Christian brothers and sisters, Have you gotten over the miraculous, heart-arresting nature that God's grace, this kind of stunning grace, found the likes of you? And not only share those good things, share how you even struggle to walk that out. How that when you come to Jesus, it doesn't mean that life is a walk in the park. Share of how life is hard, but also share about how God is always faithful because of that work of Christ and because of the help of his Holy Spirit. Covenant Life Church members, let's recommit to telling all that we can in our spheres of relationship this story of God's rescue that would culminate in Christ and let's watch God work. Both in them and in us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to hear from me that that kind of life really is available. 
you can find this morning the greatest of every conceivable blessing and you can find it in the most unexpected of places, a cross with a bloodied Savior on it and a tomb that sits empty. Non-Christian friends, if you will come to the end of doing life your way, from being unwilling to submit to the ways of God, if you would give up living life the way that you want to live it and you would submit to him alone, you can know this God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know this God. And so turn from your sin and trust in his work alone. I would encourage you, talk to any member in this room. Talk to any person in this room. Talk to a pastor for questions that you have. Or maybe you would say, I think I've done that. And maybe, just maybe, it would be this, the most unexpected of blessings that you will find today. And this, most unexpected of stories, a Midian priest becoming a worshiper of God. And one more observation, which I think is the reason this hinges the whole book. I was helped to see this through another pastor. This chapter is set immediately after chapter 17. What do we find in the latter half of chapter 17? The Amalekites are doing what? They are raging against the supremacy of this God. And I think it's not it's not a coincidence. It's God's purposeful design that these two chapters are back to back. Because we have a contrast of how the nations respond to God's salvation. The Amalekites, they rage against what God has done by going to war with his people. A Midian priest, he worships. This unexpected response from Jethro takes us back to this unexpected promise that God made to Abram, that through him the nations would be blessed. That nations would move from the enemies of God in verse 17 to his inheritance in verse 18, or uh, chapter 17 to his inheritance in chapter 18. God saves chapters 1 through 18. God speaks 19 through 40. And the hinge is that the nations would come to worship him. The nations are invited to gather around the Lord for fellowship. We even see a covenant meal take place. People that were once his enemies are now seated at his table. We find the global heartbeat of our God. Missions is not a New Testament idea. It's been on God's heart from the beginning that this world would be filled with his glory. And when sinners began to populate this world, it's been incumbent upon God's people to take this message and say, there is a better one to live for. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. In verses 8 and in verse 14, Paul says that the nations are blessed because Christ has come. That's what we just sang about, that the nations would be glad. Psalm 67, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Why? 
so that your way may be known on the earth, that your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. If you are a Christian, you have received that blessing, that undeserved favor that has extended to you in and through his grace. Why? Psalm 67 tells you. So that the nations would come to know about the goodness of this God. That continues even today into the Great Commission. It continues even today as Paul talks about the, the logical link that happens. Romans chapter 10, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they had not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. If you're a Christian... This is why you must care about God's global heart. If you're a member of this church, this is not Micah and Rachel's thing. This is our thing because it's God's thing. And here at Covenant Life, we will remain committed to this until he returns or he calls us home. On to the second blessing. It's really short. God's blessing of shared leadership for his people. God's blessing of shared leadership for his people. We see this really in the rest of the chapter, verses 13 through 27. This is what we read. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from the morning until evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you were doing for the people? Whose father-in-law has not said that? Mine hasn't. I'm just, why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and the laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. And if you were to go back and read what Moses has just said, maybe you're thinking, that sounds really good. Verse 18, you will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me and I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and work and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, men who, those who hate dis, dishonest gain, and you shall place them over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they bring, they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people also will go to their place in peace. 
God not only intends to bring more people into his fold, first blessing, he also intends to bless his people by ensuring that they're well cared for and led. What Jethro saw was not good. Moses was doing the work of the judge. Not like the Ohio State, not the judge, like he's the best judge. He was doing the work of the judge because he was the only judge for some two million people. Uh, man, my sheep is missing. What do I do? Take it to Moses. Uh, honey, did someone steal the manager? Take it to Moses. Should we buy this beach house on the shore of the Red Sea? Take it to Moses. As Moses sits literally from morning until evening, and the people stand literally from morning until evening, verse 18, Jethro says, Moses, this is going to wear you out, and it will wear everyone else out too. And when we read verses 15 and 16, I think we understand Moses' perspective. Moses has been chosen by God to speak to the people on behalf of God. People are expecting Moses to meet with God and then be able to come back and to communicate what God has said. So the father-in-law speaks and the humble son-in-law listens and he receives input. And the plan that Jethro puts forth would preserve Moses' role in seeking God's will and in teaching God's people. Moses was to handle the large burdens, and yet he was to select some qualified men to handle and offer rulings on these minor, smaller burdens. It would serve Moses to do this. It would serve God's people to do this. It would raise up new leaders if this happened. I appreciate what Kevin DeYoung, Pastor Kevin DeYoung says about these qualifications. Kevin DeYoung says, God tells Moses to look for those who stand up in four relationships. First, a relationship to the task. Are they able to do it? Second, a relationship to God. Do they fear him? Third, a relationship to others. Are they trustworthy? Do they love truth? And fourth, a relationship to money. Do they hate bribes? A relationship to the task, are they able? A relationship to God, do they fear him? A relationship to others, are they trustworthy and love truth? And a relationship to money, do they hate bribes? I think this is a great starting point. If you're thinking about, who do I name leader of blank? But not only is it a good starting point and consideration about the character of potential leaders, in the New Testament, this same precedent continues as God's people are to select from among them those with exemplary character and who are gifted in service who will help lead his people and bear the burdens of ministry. We see this in pastors and elders, kind of synonymous one office. We see this in the office of deacons. And I'm just helped by verse 24. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel 
and made them heads over the peoples, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times, the difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law well, and he went on his way into his own land. Moses listened. Just another good mark of godly leadership. We all have this impulse to want to justify ourselves on the basis of what we do. And so when suggestions come to us like this one on this day to Moses, it's easy to not listen. It's easy to build up walls that would keep us from even receiving this feedback. But good leaders know their worth is not found in what they do. It's found in who they are and what God has made them in and through the work of Jesus Christ. And so when you see leaders cultivating this type of atmosphere, this type of culture in their leadership, you should praise God for that. That's something that we try to do, our elders and our staff. We have elder retreats. We talk about graces and growths. We do service reviews each week to talk about graces and growths. Wanting to know how do we give godly encouragement? How do we receive godly critique? Good leaders listen. Then verse 25, they don't just listen. Moses also delegated. Shared leadership is a gift. Plurality of leadership is a gift. It was then and it is today in the church. Proverbs is just overflowing with verses that remind us of the good that is found in a council of many. And Covenant Life Church, I thank God for the leaders in this church. And I pray you do too. I praise God for the brothers who serve this church as elders because they are a gift in uniquely bearing the load of shepherding. I praise God for multiple deacons who meet the needs of the church in practical ways and who work to promote the unity in this body. I would just commend us all to recognize God's good gifts to our church through these, these who are humble leaders. And I pray that you would thank God and I pray that you would thank them for the way in which they serve us. And I pray that we would all take it upon ourselves to work to ensure that more biblically qualified, humble-minded leaders would mark the tenure of this church for as long as the Lord sees fit to give us. This passage leads me to praise God for this church. Our great shepherd, Jesus, is the head of the church. We have a team of elders who share the burden of leadership. And yet we couldn't do that without our deacons and our community group leaders and our various ministry coordinators. Our life together necessitates this kind of godly leadership. And just been preparing this week, my heart is uniquely and immensely thankful for God's unexpected blessing. Like who expects to find a waterfall of blessing in church leadership or church structure? And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that has found that kind of blessing.
in unexpected places through unexpected means. Have y'all seen John Huff? If you have, you should see Kevin Wilder. It gets just, just kidding. Yeah, I'm immensely thankful for this structure. Because in it, I believe that like Jethro says, God will direct us. And that we as a church will be better able to endure. And it will result in greater peace for this church. The unexpected, and bl- the unexpected blessing of salvation that's open to all who repent and believe. And the unexpected blessing of shared leadership in the local church. I pray that you would come to know both of those even today. And in knowing both of those unexpected blessings, you would be able to perceive more of God's love and his care for you. That you would be able to more fully enjoy and obey him. Because to him belongs all glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.